Now, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When the disciples heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with a skin disease are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent people take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And let's join together in prayer. God, this morning we give you thanks for your word, for your son who brings joy to the world. We ask that uh, this day and the days ahead, you fill our hearts with joy as we prepare to welcome your son and join in that work of Christmas. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay. Christmas, dear friends, can be complicated, can it? As many of us know all too well, gathering with family at the holidays can get a bit messy. And with this, I'd like to share a story from my own family. And as I was putting this sermon together, I realized I don't think I've shared a family story yet at St. John's from the pulpit. So buckle up for that. It's very on-brand for me. I have one brother. His name is John, and he is 10 years younger than I am. If you're curious about him. He is a sophomore right now at Western Carolina University. Now, I was 10 years old when he was born, and upon his arrival, my entire only child fantasy world that I lived in collapsed. 
Let me tell you, there were years of teenage angst and jealousy and envy that I wasn't getting my normal amount of attention. Well, this all culminated one Christmas when, hear this, I was definitely old enough to know better. I was probably 16 or 17 years old, and, and John was six or seven, and he did that thing that young children love to do. He woke us all up at 5 a.m. to check and see if Santa had come and to open gifts. He then proceeded to count out all of his gifts and place them in a pile and tally them against mine. His were far greater in number, and he was just so darn satisfied and smug about it. And so, in the wee hours of that morning, my Christmas rage mounted. And I may or may not have pulled the Christmas tree down on top of him as he went to grab a gift. It was an artificial tree. No injuries occurred. Like I said, I was old enough to know better. No excuses. Father, forgive me for my sins. As I was reminding Nicole, my girlfriend, this week of this story, she reminded me that uh, when she asked about my family on our very first date, that I somehow thought that that was the correct story to lead with. <laughs> Thanks for staying with me for these five years. Appreciate that. <laughs> now, I share that story with you as an illustration of just how difficult it can be to share in one another's joy. I should have been happy for John and thrilled that he was finding so much joy on Christmas morning. He just, he just rubbed it in a little bit too much for my teenage tolerance level. And this is just one small comic example of a much larger problem that we find in pretty much every human community. It's just so challenging to celebrate one another, isn't it? To find joy in someone else's joy and happiness. It's much easier to uh, cast some side-eye and start to look at one another and to compare what someone else has or what someone else is doing to what we're doing or what we have. And in that calculation, to find ourselves not measuring up. We humans often act as if there is some great joy scarcity out there. It's much more natural for us, you see, and as I'm sure you all know, to find joy in someone else's misfortune or downfall. We act like there isn't enough joy to go around, and it is if our neighbors' successes and victories and accomplishments somehow come at the expense of our own. Now, I highlight this issue because I think this may be what is going on in our gospel text for the day from Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist and Jesus, to remind you of the story, they are birth cousins, they have a complicated narrative relationship in the Gospels, right? So John prepares the way for Jesus, and in doing so, he gathers this great following of people that come out to the wilderness to hear him speak and to be baptized. But from the first moment he actually meets Jesus in the Gospels, his expectations are challenged. In the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and here's how Scripture reads from Matthew 3, 14. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Hmm. In our text for today, we again see John the Baptist confused. It's a bit ironic, after all, that John has to send his disciples to Christ to ask the question, are you the one? 
especially after John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And scripture tells us magnificently that the heavens were ripped open and a dove descended on Jesus' head and the voice of God literally boomed from the heavens saying, yep, this is the one. You would have think, you would have thought that John being intimately involved in that process would have gotten the point. But before we're too critical, it's helpful to remember that a few things about John's situation have changed. John is now in prison for his ministry. And while he's languishing there, he keeps hearing all of these stories about what Jesus is up to. And it may not have been what he was expecting. It was certainly different from his own ministry, if we think about it. John's message was one of repentance and preparation and judgment and the kingdom coming soon. Jesus' ministry is one of healing and liberation and forgiveness. John's message was harsh and strict and severe. And it's not that Jesus' gospel is any less demanding. It's just that Christ embodied it in different expectation-defying ways. The last verses of our passage reveal this, I think, most clearly. Here is what Jesus admits, kind of, kind of sideways admits, about their differing ministries. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came both eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Turns out you can't win either way. Jesus' message and his way were inclusive, invitational, joyous. As Jesus himself confesses, he broke bread and drank wine with sinners. He brought the message to those who were seemingly undeserving. It's no wonder that John, who had chosen and more than chosen, was called to live out his ministry as a desert hermit and ascetic, had questions. Add to that the reality that John's in prison for his message and probably hoping that God's judgment does come any moment now so he can spring out of jail. It's understandable, isn't it? John the Baptist, after all, was only human. And it's quite human to have difficulty celebrating someone else's success, especially when we ourselves are in dire straits, especially when that success might look different from how we imagined it. It's no wonder that he had questions. But thankfully, Jesus has answers. He could have sent a simple yes back to John, but instead he sends him a list of miracles that he performed, almost all of which have direct ties back to different Old Testament prophecies that John would have known very well. Jesus spoke John's language back to him in a manner that shows him that joy is the way. Moreover, Jesus goes on to celebrate John. Speaking to those gathered, he compliments John as the greatest of the prophets, right? As even more than a prophet. But he also shares this accompanying truth. That the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Now, I suspect this is the case because those who follow Christ know that the good news doesn't just stop with repentance and forgiveness. Those are our starting point, right? Those are our base and our foundation to which we return over and over. But our faith goes forward. 
our faith blossoms into lives filled with joy. As Christians, we know that God wants the good life for us. Yes, we are people of repentance. Yes, there is so very much work for us to do, both in our own lives and in this world that we share. But this doesn't change the fact that God designed and destined each of us to find joy in this life, in relationship with God, in community with one another. I mean, this is what church is all about. In contrast to all the rhetoric about religion being harsh and strict and dour, we find Christ's ministry to be joyful, joy-filled. In reading between the lines, we see that Jesus' ministry might have even been, dare I say, fun at times, right? I mean, in another story in the Gospels, Jesus does turn water into wine as a miracle, as a sign of God's kingdom to keep the party going. I mean, shouldn't our lives look a little bit this way as well? This brings me to uh, the major point that I want to leave you with this morning. We see clearly in our gospel reading today that joy is both a gift of faith and it's also an act of resistance. First, joy is a gift of faith. Joy flows from our faith because only in relationship with Christ is true joy possible. Sure, any of us can be happy. We all have our good moments and even our good stretches or periods in our lives. That goes without saying. You don't have to go to church or be involved with Jesus to be happy from time to time. But a joyful disposition, a habit, and a discipline of joy comes from the Holy Spirit, from God's Spirit working that within our hearts. This is true whether we acknowledge it in the moment or not. And being joyful doesn't mean that, we're, that we'll always be happy. We won't. It doesn't mean that things will always go our way. They won't. It doesn't mean that we'll always have things figured out. We certainly won't. But what it does mean is that even in those hard times, that we have a hopeful foundation that can bring us peace, that can fill us with joy. We can't take the kingdom by violence. We can't manipulate God with our actions or earn our way into heaven. There's no magic flute that we can play to make God dance along to whatever rhythm we want God to. Instead, we see that when we lean into our faith, when we recognize our need and our dependence on God, when we strengthen our trust in Christ through things like corporate worship and devotional practices at home, we more than often find ourselves, to use a quote from C.S. Lewis, to be surprised by joy. Joy is a mark of the Holy Spirit working in you. It can and will blossom in our lives, oftentimes where we least expect. Joy is also an act of resistance. As I preached about last time I was up here, we live in a world filled with bad news and distractions, right? It's easy to get caught up and to feel overwhelmed and anxious. It's just as easy to be tricked into living based on emotionalism, which is a way of thought that teaches us to base our success and security on the compass of our own emotional state at any given time. It also makes a lot of money. I'm sure you know also that some forms of Christian thinking teach that we should feel guilt or shame when we're experiencing too much joy. 
we can resist all these ways of thinking and all the things that would keep us down by grounding ourselves in the promises of our faith, the promises that we're going to remember in just a moment as we baptize Asher. Promises that God loves us no matter what, that God always works to restore us no matter how we feel about it at any given moment. God commissions us, calls us to live and invite others into the good life. We're encouraged, despite all the twists and turns that life might take, to have joy anyways. We take this season of Advent not only to prepare for Christ's birth among us, but also to join in that work of Christmas, to join in that work and ministry of Christ that brings joy to the world. As Christians, we can wield this gift of joy as a way to actively resist all in this world that works against God's way of love. And so I want to leave you this morning with a question. Think about this. When was the last time that you yourselves felt joy? Joy for yourselves. Joy for another. And as we go out today, I want to encourage you. Take some time in your day to seek out joy. Take a break. Do something that brings you happiness. Rest in Christ's promises for you. Maybe take that joy for yourself or for someone who crosses your path. In the season of Advent, we know that joy is always already on the way to us. It came at Christmas. It comes now to us in each moment when we take the space to listen for it. Contrary to the world, to what the world might tell us, we're not in competition with one another. We can share in each other's joy in God's kingdom, there's no joy scarcity. No moment, dear siblings, is too low. No situation is too dire. No person is so hopeless that God's joy can't show up and change everything. Amen.